Hello, my name is Tyrone, and I'm the owner of BPPW Heating and Cooling. Uh, we, we, where you can get all your heating and cooling needs met uh, at reasonable rates. Uh, uh, the name of our show is Call Tyrone, and welcome to our show, Call Tyrone, uh, featuring myself and uh, Zachary Leacock, Millennials Zachary Leacock, and Leroy Myers Jr. The, uh, Leroy Myers Jr., just a little bit about these millennials. Leroy Myers Jr. is a graduate student and teaching assistant at the University of Oklahoma. His area of study is the dynamics of the intersection of African American and Native American culture and history. Zachary J. Leacock, social media entrepreneur who majored in audio production, radio, TV, and film at Howard University. He is a socially conscious vegan and a producer of Channel 10 podcasts featuring interviews with pioneering rap artists. He is also a hip hop historian and a chronicle of the hip-hop scene, as well as a hip-hop artist and singer who's performed at many venues in, in the local area. Uh, for now, we're going to give, uh, we're going to pay homage to Dr. Martin Luther King, one of our like I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. Yeah. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Okay, that was, uh, it's kind of hard to listen to a Dr. King speech, even to this day, without being moved. Dr. King actually made that speech the night before he was killed. And so I, I really think of Dr. King as, as a, uh, more or less uh, a prophet. One, one of our last prophets. Uh, Malcolm X was one, and, and uh, we had some others. Uh, but Dr. King was certainly a brilliant man, and he was, Dr. King was actually a genius. Uh, he actually uh, went to Morehouse College at, at the age of 15. He started Morehouse College at the age of 15, and um, he, he had his Ph.D. by the time he was 26 years old. So the man, the man you know, I, when, I, when I talk to people, I sometimes say, we probably won't see the likes of a Dr. King or, or Malcolm X in, in the next 100 years or so. Because because of his uh, his brilliance and what he did for his people, you know, Dr. King was was uh, he was also courageous. He was brave. You know, he was stabbed. You know, a lot of people know Dr. King was stabbed. He was stabbed. He was shot. You know, people walk up to him and punch him in the face, and um, you know, he suffered a lot. He has, he had his home firebombed as a result of some of his work, and people were trying to stop his work. And what jettisoned him to uh, national and, and, and later international claim was the. Um, was a Montgomery uh, uh, bus boycott. I think Dr. King was around 26 or so when when he led that when he led that boycott. So this is a this is a plug to the millennials. You know, Dr. King was a young man when he died. He died when he was uh, 39 years old. He never made it to 40. A lot of people think of Dr. King as being an old man, but all the stresses of his life is what contributed to to him looking as old as he did. And um, you know, uh, you know, he never got to live out you know his 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 full life, but you know. And that's why people that's why people respected Dr. King because they knew that he would actually die for what he believed in. And he knew he was gonna die. And that's that was the first that that first uh 
speech. That was the mountaintop speech. And I thought that was the most powerful speech he made. A lot of people say the, 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 the uh, I have a dream speech. I say it's the mountaintop speech because he actually prophesied his own death. And uh, uh, that, that Montgomery boy, bus boycott, by the way, and this is for, for the women, Rosa Parks. There are a lot of people think she's just, you know, was a woman that doesn't give her a seat in the bus. Well, back in those days, you went to the bus, you paid at the front of the bus, you went to the back of the bus. They put a headline down the middle of the bus. And, um, and then uh, you couldn't, you, if you were black, you sat behind that line. Okay. And if uh, the, the, in front of that line was for white passengers, you could not board that bus at the front of the bus. You paid at the front and you went to the back. And, um, uh, once the back filled up, then the, the, um, you have to give up your seat. You would have to start giving up your seats. The, the line would go forward and forward and forward. You have to give up your seats. And, um, Rosa Parks, She's a very brave woman. Her 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 grandparents were uh, slaves, by the way. She was born in 1913. Grandparents were slaves, and she remembers her father standing at the door with the KKK marching down the street of her at her hometown in front of their property. They were farmers. Okay, he see her father standing. Her grandfather standing at the front door with a shotgun as the KKK marched down the street. So she does have. She's she's more than just a one dimensional uh, character. Uh, she was also a youth leader of the NAACP uh, in her town, and she also served as a secretary uh, to the, uh, uh, well, I think his name was E.D. Nixon, who was the head of the NAACP during the Montgomery bus boycott. And Dr. King was elected to be the head of, the, of that uh, Montgomery Improvement Association, which led to, subsequently led to the Montgomery uh, bus boycott, and the rest is history. He became, he became very famous as a result of that, and he was an excellent orator. Uh, but as but but um but anyway that is what that was the old Jim Crow and the old Jim Crow started at the end of slavery and a lot of people don't know this but the um Emancipation Proclamation did not end end slavery it it did not end slavery they were still slaves in the north i forget the numbers uh, uh, close to i don't want to say the wrong figure but they were still slaves in the north after the signing of the uh, Emancipation Proclamation that was not a law. That was a, that was an executive order. Okay, and, it, and if you read it, what it does is it frees slaves only in states in rebellion against the the North. Okay, so you still had slaves in the North after the sight of, of the Emancipation Proclamation. So what we needed was the Thirteenth Amendment to the Constitution, and what that says is slavery and voluntary servitude is is prohibited in the United States except and there's a stipulation except as punishment for a crime. Okay, so you can still be made a slave legally in this country as punishment for a crime. I want people to understand that. And there was a system of peonage that arised after, there was reason for that, that, uh, that stipulation. There was a system of peonage that arrived after slavery, uh, peonage and Jim Crow. And you could be arrested for all kinds of Jim Crow offenses and made to serve on farms and build highways on, on, uh, on road construction crews called chain gangs because of, of a crime of, of uh, reckless eyeballing which was looking at a white woman too long or bumptious behavior, not stepping off the curb for a white person. You had all kinds of Jim Crow laws that could get an innocent black person in a lot of trouble in those times. So that was a serious, this was not a figment of black people's imagination. When we agitated to, to get our civil rights, you had pregnant women being punched. And if you think those people weren't brave, or if you think that King wasn't brave, I want you to go outside and go into a backyard, find a German shepherd and jump over that fence with that German shepherd. And you're going to find out how brave you are because that's what those people had to face. And, or go outside and let somebody shoot you with a water hose, a fire hose. Right now, go out there and see how long you last. That's how brave those people. You're talking about pregnant women and, and uh, old men and, 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 and teenagers out there, kids, uh, enduring this stuff. 
No, that was a very, I, I would call the uh, civil rights movement uh, pretty much uh, a second a second revolution of sorts because it, it changed, it actually changed the way we did business in this country in a lot of ways. And it opened the doors for a lot of people. And we enjoy a lot. Some of us enjoy a lot of fruits. Unfortunately, some of us like Clarence Thomas <laughs> have pulled the, the ladder up behind us. You know, once we got to where we so-called arrived or whatever. And Clarence Thomas, uh, I, what I call him is the anti-Thurgood Marshall, who Thurgood Marshall actually uh, fought uh, for for a lot of those rights before he became a Supreme Court justice. Brown versus Board of Education was one of them. Um, um, and uh, several other cases that he uh, actually uh, debated before, before the Supreme Court, before he became a Supreme Court justice. Clarence Thomas never did any of that. And uh, he was just somebody that was down the hall, a black guy down the hall that the Republicans thought they could use, which they were right, they, and they, they put him there. He's voted against everything, affirmative action, anything that came before the court, he's voted against it. Deal with affirmative action, no rights for anything. Okay, now, uh, fa fast forward to, uh, uh, we have something now called the, the new Jim Crow. Okay, and then I'm going to um, segue to that. Anthony Bourdain has a show on TV. It's about cooking, but it's also about the places that he visits. It's more about those places than anything else. Let's start by being honest with ourselves. As a nation, for decades, we were perfectly happy to write off whole neighborhoods, whole cities, whole generations of young men and women. As long as it was an inner city problem, an urban problem, which is to say, a black people problem, a brown people problem. Send them to prison, into a system from which they'll never return. Maybe now, now that it's really come home to roost, now that it's the high school quarterback, your next door neighbor, your son, your daughter, now that grandma's as likely to be a junkie as anybody else, we'll accept that there has never been a real war on drugs. War on drugs implies an us versus them. And all over this part of America, people are learning there is no them. There is only us. And we're going to have to figure this out together. Now, what Andy Bourdain was talking about was um, the increase in uh, white addiction to uh, heroin as a result of uh, overprescription of uh, opiates like Oxycontin. And there was a small town that was hit by, uh, that he visited, that was hit, actually hit by uh, um, a plant closing and some other economic disasters that hit that, befell that town. So you had white people resorting to selling dope. You know, just like black people do in the industry. So it's not just something that black people do. It's, it's, it's people without hope or without a way to make money. That's, that's just, you know, unfortunately, and I'm not saying it's right and I'm not excusing it, but these things, these things that happen is realism. You go to any country where there's a drug prohibition and you'll have that. You go to Mexico. El Chapo just got arrested. You know, he's responsible for thousands of deaths. Okay. And then and there's a certain amount of murders that go with the sale of illegal drugs. So the profit motive behind the, the sale of illegal drugs is a great, and a lot of people don't realize this, is a great contributor to the murders. People are just running around murdering each other. What happens is uh, somebody tells you you can't sell drugs above North Pennsylvania. You can't, you can't do that. If you do that, they're going to come and shoot you. And then your boys are going to retaliate, and they're going to shoot them. And that's what's happening. If a junkie has a $200 a day drug habit, he has to commit $200 a day worth of crime. Okay? So we got we to gotta do better. I think... And then, and, and then he may have to commit, commit a murder, too. Now, trust me, I'm not justifying any of this. If you're involved in any type of crime, get out of it because your, your day's coming. And, um, but people are desperate. There's a lot of lack of hope. And when you put stuff like drugs that they can market and in, in their vicinity and they have no other hope, sometimes they resort to that. It's hard for us to understand that if we're, we're working and we're, you know, we're making a lot of money and all this kind of stuff. We don't, we don't, we don't get all that because our needs are met for the most part. But um, 
This is a very serious thing. And and, and to, to put to bring it home, one in six black males by 2001 have been incarcerated. And if the rates continue the way they are now, one in three males, black males, I'm sorry, black males, let me qualify that, born today. One in three black males born today will see some type of incarceration before they die. Okay. And um, it, even though, <laughs> even though uh, two-thirds of crack cocaine users are white, just remember, we're 12% of the population. We're, you know, the, the white people make up 70%, then you got others. Okay. But two-thirds of crack users, cocaine users are white. 80% of the people prosecuted for crack users are black. Okay. So there's no, there's no equivalent. And, uh, and as far as the marijuana laws being liberalized, it's not because marijuana is good for you. Marijuana is bad for you. But it's also bad to have that on your record when you go to get employment. So people started to realize that blacks were four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than whites. In a lot of cases, whites would simply be let go. Your son gets pulled up, he's thrown on the sidewalk and, and made to lay there and, and taken in for, to custody. So uh, our treatment in the tr criminal justice system hasn't been all, altogether fair and equal. And uh, we got it. And just releasing prisoners, yeah, well, they should be released. Uh, when you do crack, crack cocaine laws, when you consider the crack cocaine laws versus the cocaine laws. But at the same time, you got to make the population whole. We got to make our people whole. There should be a Marshall Plan to put these people back to work, give them a livelihood. And don't tell me black people don't want to work. Every McDonald's I pull into and every Burger King, there's loads of young black kids in there working. And I, I hate to hear that when I hear people, I feel like spagging them. Um, but um, five times as many whites, again, five times as many whites use, use drugs as blacks. But we are, we are arrested with drug offense more than ten, 10 times as much as white people. Okay, so that's, that's serious. This is a very serious problem. And the war on drugs has been, it's, it, white people have felt it too, but it's been exclusively, almost exclusively uh, prosecuted against us. Okay, it's been used as a tool, either by mistake or on purpose, to oppress black people. And that's why I, I'm against drug prohibition. Zachary? Uh, yes, um, this is Zachary Leacock. And I'm um, going back to what you said about it uh, not being fair, um, especially when it comes to the marijuana laws. Um, just my perspective. Um, I was born after the start of the war on drugs. So um, I don't know life without it. And my earliest memories are of the same issues that we speak of today. Um, so some of the statistics are that um, on an annual basis, the federal government uh, spends billions of dollars, um, as well as the state governments also spend uh, $25 billion uh, on the war on drugs. Now, um, according to uh, drugfacts.org, uh, um, when it comes to annual uh, death rates, uh, tobacco causes 435,000 deaths per year. Uh, poor diet, 365,000 deaths per year. Alcohol, uh, 800, uh, 80, excuse me, 85,000 deaths per year. Uh, when you scroll down the list, you get to the illicit use of drugs, you get to 17,000 deaths per year. And in marijuana, you have zero deaths per year. But there's a huge disparity between the amount of money that's spent on the war on drugs versus the war on, you know, getting people to not smoke cigarettes. <laughs> um, I think it's about, it's about 468 million let me interrupt you briefly, briefly. Mm -hmm. And when you said about alcohol, and a lot of people doesn't know, you know, don't know this, but alcohol was once illegal for a period. It, uh, the Volstag Act of 1919, it was a Prohibition Act. And that, what that did was that made alcohol illegal. And they said that people 
pee this room and they'll know it. And that's exactly what we're doing. Um, after the vote, uh, alcohol was made illegal, people still, guess what? People still drank. Right. Okay. It probably in greater numbers than when it was legal. And um, uh, the only way they solved that problem, actually, Al Capone became a billionaire based on illegal liquor sales. Right. There were murders in the streets of Chicago, probably as many as they're, they're having now. I think one year they had like a thousand murders in Chicago behind uh, the sale of illegal alcohol in fight over alcohol territory. Okay, but these weren't black people. They were Italian, you know, for the most part Italian, and some Irish, and, and some other uh, nationalities. Uh, uh, John F. Kennedy's father was a bootlegger, uh, Joe Kennedy. So, you know, this thing is, you know, like, as the saying goes, uh, people that don't know history are doomed to repeat it. And we are repeating it. Go on, Zach. Sorry. Right. So, um, and um, during that time, uh, during Prohibition, there were um, a lot of... Um, you know, negative aspects that came out of it um, due to the uh, illegal black markets because the actual product was illegal. So it had to have a whole underground economy and with underground economies, um, economies come uh, violence. And so when people uh, come at the youth of today, the black youth of today, and they criticize us for, you know, killing each other and things of that nature, um, a lot of times I think that people don't actually look at the underlying causes um, to the conditions that are being created, which isn't to take away personal responsibility from individuals. But like you said, if you don't know the history, then you are doomed to repeat it. So uh, now we have, um, for instance, with uh, marijuana, zero deaths per year, but all of this money is spent on um, you know, prosecuting uh, people and locking them up, and then they get something on that record. Once they finally come out and they have a criminal record, they're unable to get a job. Um, actually, uh, as you stated before, the 13th Amendment says that slavery is abolished um, unless uh, someone has been uh, duly convicted of a crime. So, in effect, you are uh, branded back into slavery. Um, and there's a statistic um, by Michelle Alexander, who wrote the book, The New Jim Crow, um, and she stated that, and this was in 2013, that there are more black men incarcerated than were in slavery in 1850. So... If there are more black men incarcerated under probation or parole than enslaved in 1850, and when um, being under that type of condition is considered that you're still under um, slavery, then that would mean that there are still more sl slaves now. Yeah, what, what, what he said about Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, is the book is called uh, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in a Colorblind Society. Right. Excellent book. If you want to understand what's going on with mass incarceration or the war on drugs, you need to read that book uh, from cover to cover. It, it, it pretty much, she's done a lot of research. She's a lawyer. She's a brilliant lady. She's done a lot of research on this because she was uh, she was touched by the fact that a lot of our youth are being dragged away. We're about to lose another, uh, and we can't afford to lose another generation of urban youth. Right. And uh, we that's what we've been doing. Uh, they've been taken away in droves and chains, just like slavery. Right. And our people fought too hard to get out of slavery and out of Jim Crow for us to want to, you know, give up our freedom that easy. There are people in this world that will die for their freedom. We're, here we are. We're, we're just giving it up, you know. Like, and that doesn't take away personal responsibility. Right. But there are systems of oppression in place to, to, to uh, contribute. To our, our, our right, pathologies. Go ahead. And then once you're, um, you know, branded a felon, you lose actual human rights. Um, you know, you lose constitutional rights from the Bill of Rights, such as your Second Amendment right. Um, a lot of times you'll lose your right to vote um, in addition to not being able to have a job. And um, you can lose um, access to uh, housing, um, both public and private. Uh, so it really marks you for the rest of your life to the point where you have to actually go back and, you know, do things um 
back in that underground economy and you know the system perpetuates itself so it's not to take away personal responsibility but when our people are being targeted more for certain things um you know versus white people um who do the same things at the same rates then uh you can see that the system is perpetuated by the the uh prohibition on uh drugs okay uh leroy uh, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yes, uh, yes, yes. Yeah, so this is uh, Leroy Myers, and um, also you know Michelle Alexander writes in the New Jim Crow that uh, sociologists have argued that governments use punishment as a tool of social control. So it's important to note this kind of second class that develops from this harsh uh, drug policy that uh, the, the uh, United States has has at this moment. And how it has a trickle-down effect on social roles blacks and Latinos have in this country, which also includes uh, ones who haven't used drugs at all. And how the stigma of drug use and violence leads to negative effects on uh, their career choices um, for simply being stereotyped. And um, a recent study concluded that a, um, that a black college student had the same chances of obtaining employment than a white high school dropout. Yes. And, and by the way, drugs are illegal. But you can get drugs any day of the week, <laughs> any hour of the night, okay? Yeah. But drugs are illegal. So <laughs> the only thing the drug laws are doing, actually, is perpetuating a state of underclassness for certain a certain segment of, of the uh, society, namely uh, urban black youth. Right. And uh, based on the numbers, um, you know, there are um, a lot of other things that cause, you know, more deaths than um, illicit drugs. So I'm... I'm looking at the laws trying to figure out how exactly are they looking out for the public interest to, to make the most people safe. And it just seems like it's, it's there for uh, the purpose of incarceration. Um, I think so. Um, the uh, actual jail population um, or prison population in America has exploded since the beginning of the war on drugs. And uh, we incarcerate more of our own people than um, a lot. Well, any other country in the world, including oppressive regimes such as uh, Russia and China. Yeah, the United States makes up 25% of the uh, prison population of the world's prison population, only 5% of the world's population. So that, that is true. Um, that, that, that's quite true. Um, uh, we're going to turn it over to uh, callers. If you want to call in, uh, numbers 410-481-1010. Uh, so if you would like to call in. Yes, good afternoon. Hi, uh, good afternoon. Um, who's uh, who's, ca who's calling? Yes, Charles. Oh, yes. Uh, hello, Charles. Um, um, uh, thank you for calling in. Um, did you have a comment uh, for us today? Yeah, yeah. Um, when I was little, um, I always had a mysterious dry cough, and they used to take me to the doctor all the time, and they could never figure out what the cough was um, coming from or how to treat it, and they used to try a lot of different things. And then once I got older and then I started smoking marijuana, then the cough went away and I didn't have any more problems. But when I joined the military and I stopped smoking, then the cough came back. So the whole time that I was in Desert Storm, I was dealing with that dry cough. Mm. But when I came back and I got out the military and I started smoking again, the cough went away. Now, drugs are just like food, just like water, just like anything. Something that's causing a physical or mental change in your mind or your body is a drug. You know, mm -hmm. there are benefits to some drugs if you use them properly. And I think we're just being lambasted because 
marijuana has so many good properties and we're not able to use those properties. We, we're, we're being targeted and we're being criminalized for just trying to make ourselves whole. I mean, anybody that has a psychiatric problem has to take some kind of medication to correct that problem. Well, marijuana is a medication also, and it corrects a lot of problems. So we need to start looking at things in the proper context. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I understand the, about illicit drugs. Charles, but, there, there's a, um, there, there are some um, medical uses for marijuana, and, and in some states it's actually been um, medicalized. Where they, you know, you use, um, you can actually get marijuana prescribed to you for cancers and things of that nature, so that it can improve your 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 appetite. I'm, I'm but now. Did you also know that you can build houses with marijuana? <laughs> that you can build cars with He's marijuana. marijuana. <laughs> you can make. You can make. You, you know, we they, we used to use marijuana to make products, but then they came up with plastic. Now plastic is toxic, and it's bad for the environment. But marijuana is natural, it lasts longer, it's stronger, and more durable. So we just became a throwaway society. We are throwing away ourselves for this phony war on drugs. Well, thank you for your call, Charles. Thank Thank you so much for your comments. Um, Now, I do believe that that he does have uh, some points, like you stated, uh, marijuana does have medicinal uh, applications, and um, it has been posited um, that the uh, pharmaceutical companies, uh, you know, they want it. Um, uh, they want to continue to make it illegal uh, because it'll affect their uh, bottom line when it comes to some of their prescriptions. And um, you know, one of the things about the uh, opiates and the heroin um, from the Anth- the uh, Anthony Bourdain clip that we just had is that a lot of people are getting into it from the opiates that they get the uh, painkillers. Absolutely. Uh, um, so oxycodone and, and like right. So the uh, government has the legal ability to actually uh, sell you uh, these opiates, but. Um, you know, we get penalized for it. In fact, the biggest abusers of of uh, drugs in this country are senior citizens. A mm-hmm. lot of people don't know that, and they're, they're what they're abusing is uh, is prescription drugs. And uh, Rush Limbaugh, <laughs> who's been, always rallied, a right winger radio commentator, who's always rallied against uh, drug addicts, as uh, was was actually caught in a scam to uh, falsify prescriptions. Well, Oxycontin, oh, yeah. he, he got addicted to uh, Oxycontin. So, so there's a lot of people that have ended up uh, addicted to opiates based on their prescriptions because of, for pain and everything else once they got injured in sports or whatever. And they ended up as, as heroin addicts because they couldn't get to the oxycodone anymore. So they resort to the streets. Right. Yeah, and I mean, and also, you know, the, uh, the, drug poly, the Drug Policy Alliance wrote that, you know, over 700,000, there were over 700,000 marijuana-related arrests last year in 2015. And um, if you look at the way opiates are abused compared to marijuana and the effects that both drugs will have um, on the human body, you know, you kind of um, sit and wonder and question about the amount um, of arrests that are made because of marijuana each year and where that money can go to. Right. And, um, you know, just the amount of money that they spend, um, you know, once again, you know, on the war on drugs and then housing uh, people who are incarcerated and just, you know, the whole system that money can uh, go to, um, you know, more rehabilitation. Rehabilitation. Yeah. Rehabilitation, uh, research, uh, really actually helping people instead of, um, instead of locking them up and, you know, taking away their basic human rights uh, for nonviolent offenses. Mm 
And in some cases, it cost, it could cost as, uh, as much as $40,000 to house an inmate a year. You pay some, somebody college for that. Yeah. So um, we're basically chasing out our tails. Once you get arrest somebody, you, uh, you, you open the door to recidivism because once they can't get a job, they're going to be out there again. And the other thing is it perpetuates itself because once that person gets locked up, there's another person that wants to be on the corner to take his place, to move right in there and take his place. So it just goes on, on, on. And then us as the uh, adults, we're seeing, uh, we're saying, yeah, lock them up, lock them up. It's drugs, lock them up. So we're not, it's, it's, it's a self-perpetuating thing. We got to do better. Right. Um, okay, so we have about uh, 30 seconds left. Um, are there any uh, final um, uh, uh, comments that you guys want to make in regards to this issue? Well, I would, I would like to say, uh, if you need a, a furnace installed or a AC system installed, call BPPW. Don't go to don't go to Yahoo because you, what you'll do is get a Yahoo to do it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for listening, and um, happy Martin Luther King to everybody. See you next week. <laughs>